Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast, where we choose to recover out loud by sharing our personal stories of inspiration, hope, and triumph. Together, we can end the stigma and shame typically tied to mental illness and the disease of addiction. We are proof that recovery does happen. Joy and laughter may be involved. This is the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast with Lori Winfeld. We are talking to Ted Hartwell today to celebrate the Problem Gambling Awareness Month. And we're not celebrating, we're bringing awareness. I'm so excited to have Ted on at the podcast. Welcome, Ted. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, I'm so excited. So I was just talking with Ted pre-interview and we here at the Recovery Hour make it very clear that those of us in recovery aren't always just in recovery from substance use and or alcohol drugs. Addiction is is something that is a brain disease and can happen uh, with other things such as gambling. And we're here to talk to Ted about that today, not only his own personal story, but also what Ted is doing in the community to help bring awareness to problem gambling. So we're going to start off with Ted giving us a little spiel about his life and how becoming someone who is advocating for problem gambling and the awareness of the existence of that. And holy Jesus, guess what? This guy lives in Las Vegas. <laughs> so, it's like you are you. It's like a candy store. It is literally like an alcoholic being in a bar every morning. So, well, well I really want to talk about that as well, knowing that you have these things all over. So, so Ted, if you will, please give us a little, a quick snapshot of, of who you are, what you're doing these days. And then I really want to get into a quick meat of the story of, of how you were introduced to gambling and, and, and where that took you. Great. Thank you, Lori, for uh, asking me onto the program this morning. I'm very excited to talk about what a lot of us know is the, the hidden addiction, kind of the problem gambling. Um, I uh, am a research scientist at the Desert Research Institute with a background in anthropology and archaeology. I've been there for over 30 years. Whoa. Um, he was 10 when he started. I was, I was 10 when I started. That's right. <laughs> and um, I'm actually in a phased retirement right now from that 30-year job um, to a, a full-time job, uh, ultimately, with the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling, which is where my passion lies these days. So late-life career change. Um, by night, I'm a professional cellist with the Las Vegas Philharmonic uh, I've been a soccer coach, a volleyball coach here in town, so connected to the community in a lot of different ways. But long story short, none of those kept me from develop, developing a pretty serious gambling addiction that reached its head about 14 and a half years ago. And so as I got into recovery from that illness, I became very interested in the idea of uh, public advocacy and awareness on this issue. I didn't see a lot of public faces discussing gambling addiction the way that we have for some of the substances where we may have elite athletes uh, or celebrities or even past presidents who have alluded to their struggles with substances and how they got better. We, we were a little bit behind the curve in the gambling world on those. Absolutely. And that's interesting you would bring that up 
one of the reasons I started the Recovery Hour podcast is exactly that and for drinking, which is interesting that you say on your end, right? Everyone's addiction is like, no one's talking about it enough. And it's so true because there are so many. And there are so many of us that are suffering and suffering in silence and not recognizing that there are so many, like we can relate, we can relate. And you and I, I am sure will find by the end of uh, this hour, we'll be BFFs and talking about our addictions, regardless of what they are. So gambling for you, drinking for me, and knowing that it's really a brain disease. And when it comes down to it, they just, our brains work differently than others. But what I love to say always in the end, I find that anyone I've ever talked to that is an addict is also brilliant. And I think that um, the addiction side of it just comes from the exhaustion of being brilliant. So uh, I'm going to keep with that. It's not scientifically proven, but here at the Recovery Hour podcast, uh, Dr. Lori says all is well. Okay. So what, how, how did this start for you? It's now you said 14 and a half years ago. Now, is that you're, you have not gambled for that long or was that how long you were gambling? Yes. Yes. That is my sobriety date. Um, the last time I gambled was September 14th, 2007. And, uh, that was at green Valley ranch station here in Las Vegas. And the reason it was my go-to place, uh, primarily in the last couple years uh, of my addiction is that, um, it was very, very close to my daughter's daycare. And so I knew I could leave work early, uh, go and gamble at the casino till the last minute before her daycare closed, pick her up and be home with her. And my wife, then wife, would be none the wiser about um, where I'd been and what I'd uh, been doing. So that was the, the primary reason I gambled at that location, although ultimately it also became because they offered me all sorts of comps and incentives, of course, to keep coming to that uh, location as well. Um, now, when you were going to the Green Valley Ranch, were you heading into the poker room? Were you putting liens on your house? Were you throwing some nickels in the in the quarter machine? Nickels in the quarter machine probably wouldn't have worked. Were you uh, <laughs> were you on the slots? Like, what was your what was your uh, drug of choice? I guess when it comes to to gambling. Yeah, so while I started out uh, primarily as a live poker player, ultimately my um, addiction revolved around video poker uh, primarily uh, and at the end of the day. Um, a lot of people in the recovery community um, call it video crack mm. uh, in terms of how they refer to it. And we have lots of people with, with um, cross addiction, somewhere between 40 and 70% of people who um, have a gambling disorder will also screen as having a, a substance use disorder or be in recovery from a substance use disorder, have that somewhere in their lifetime history. But uh, uh, video poker is what ultimately uh, got me. Yeah. And that statistic seems low almost because in, I, 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 again, I, you know, no scientists here and I know you're a research, uh, this is Lori right on the podcast, but what I feel like working with, with mostly women throughout my career as a coach, it's this pleasure center. It's this, we're just looking for that, you know, hit, is it the dopamine that we get all excited about? And then we just need, and so, yeah, for me, when I stopped drinking, what did I go to? I went to sugar, uh, I live in Reno, Nevada. 
I play slots and I literally, my husband looks at me and he's like, I never see her happier. I've never seen her happy because I'm like, I'm just in a little world. And so I want to talk about that as well. I know that you have some, some things going on where you are also working with the youth gambling awareness programs in Clark County uh, that has something to do with video game disorders and student athlete gambling, which I think is super important to discuss as well. Really gambling happens right in front of us all the time. Absolutely. Most of us um, actually learn to gamble in the home, even though neither the parents nor the kids probably think of it as gambling, especially this time of year. You know, we just had the Super Bowl happen. A lot of people have Super Bowl parties where they have the Super Bowl squares. Everybody puts in a dollar or five dollars or whatever it is. And it's a family affair. <laughs> it's a That's family ex- affair. Exactly right. March Madness, right? Doing that in the family, sometimes learning how to play poker, which is uh, one thing I did as a child. But the, the research is really clear that the uh, more that children participate in gambling activities when they're young, the greater their chance of developing a gambling disorder later in life. The same is true of substances, of course, as well. Um, and uh, uh, when I was growing up, of course, we had no idea about any of this research. Gambling wasn't talked about in the schools uh, and usually isn't today uh, even, but uh, um, I was gambling by at least the age of 10. Uh, a lot of that used to be on family trips, driving from Lubbock, Texas to Rio Doso, New Mexico, where there was a horse race track. And we would camp in the mountains outside of town, which was great fun as a kid. I remember that uh, with a, a, a great fondness. Um, and I suspect it's so that my dad could save money on hotels so that he had more to bet on the horses. But be that as it may, it was fun. And we would <laughs> go into the and spend the whole day at the track. And my father would give each of the kids $20 and that was ours to gamble on the horses for the day. So by the age of 10, I knew all of the horse racing jargon. I'd tell my father which horses to place bets on throughout the day. And, you know, money I won was mine to keep. And the money I lost was really his uh, anyway. But I think it probably helped him maybe justify what was already a, a problem in his life in some ways. Yeah. So with this, I can imagine just listening to this, that there are parents and adults that are going to call BS and say, this is just fun stuff we do with our kids. I have a feeling my husband's going to listen to this. (laughs) I've been learning the over-under jargon. Because I'm a big basketball fan. And absolutely, we talk about this freely with the children. They, they are in the, we have the brackets right now for March Madness. We had the squares for the Super Bowl. What, what, are, what are you teaching? Again, I know that it's exciting you have this NCPG's Youth Gambling Awareness and Family Gambling Awareness Program in Clark County. What are you teaching families in the sense of being aware that this is not just a family game and what sort of habits we are now creating for our children? Right. The best advice, of course, I can give to parents is to delay your children's um, participation in gambling activities of any any kind until they are adults and be prepared to have that discussion uh, at a time when, um, you know, sports wagering is pr- proliferating across the country and you can't turn on a, a professional or collegiate sports match anymore without the announcers discussing the odds. Um, they often have direct associations with the sports wagering companies or fantasy sports leagues and things like that. Um, It's uh, important that 
um, that parents know that this is affecting the reward center in the brain in the exact same ways a, a substance can for those of us that are at risk for developing an addictive disorder. So in spite of the fact there's no substance actually being ingested, the biochemistry of gambling disorder is essentially identical as the substance use disorder. The same neurotransmitters are involved, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, norepinephrine, all of these things that we hear about with regards to substances are also true for gambling. So when you participate in those activities as a, a young child, you're already starting to set up some of those neural path, pathways for kind of the, the, the risk and reward uh, idea. Um, which, which ultimately for those of us that develop an addiction becomes a way to escape from or deal with, with pain or other things in our life that we, you know, uh, that are causing us, us pain in a very maladaptive way. The underlying issues that we're all running from and believe that uh, the, the, the solution is blank. <laughs> for sure. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm so passionate about youth and youth programs. And I, I've administered a couple for the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling for some time, one of which is focused on youth and shows uh, shows a, a high school student becoming addicted to uh, playing poker with his friends and the impact that has in all areas of his life, not just the finances. Uh, but I've also taken the opportunity to develop a couple of programs myself over the last few years, uh, one of which is um, focused on student-athlete gambling mm. awareness, because this is a very, very high-risk group particularly among young male athletes. Um, we know that at the NCAA level, uh, about a quarter of male athletes report having gambled on sports within the past year. And every single one of them is jeopardizing their ability to play at that level by doing so, regardless of whether they're betting on their own sport or somebody else's at any level, not even collegiate. And uh, and so getting that information into the high schools before they ever uh, get to college is, is important because they're almost all betting now already. Gosh. And so giving them information on what a gambling problem looks like, how it can affect other areas of their life, and just generally getting them thinking about what behaviors am I engaging in right now? Not just gambling, but could be substances, could be anything that may jeopardize my dream of playing at that next level or playing at this level, right? Representing my high school. And so we just have a very basic conversation. It's not an anti-gambling message. You know, <laughs> the vast majority of people who choose to gamble can do so responsibly without any negative long-term effects. But I'm not one of those anymore, uh, for sure. And so I want to make sure people know where to get help and that there is help when, when that happens. Oh my gosh, that is an amazing message. And thank you so much for sharing that. And knowing that for the youth, I, I am a mom, I have teenage, I have, we have one in college, high school and uh, elementary, we're all over the place. And my, my middle, my middle one. So my son is who I worry about sometimes because not just what you're talking about, but not immediately understanding the consequence of what your actions are bringing. So for instance, going back to your story where you started, and I definitely want to poke and prod a little more about that. And here's some, some personal, I, some personal things. That's what my listeners love to hear. Um, the Green Valley Ranch story. So it sounds like, because you said my then wife, 
<laughs> that there I'm going to put I'm going to tie this together that perhaps some of the issues that were happening at the Green Valley Ranch might have had something to do with the family as well. And what I want to touch on here is the fact that one where I was headed with the sun is the consequence that we don't always recognize in drinking, you know, eating gambling, what the consequence is going to be. You just want that immediate pleasure seeking sort of like, ah, euphoria. And then also gambling to me, people think of, in my experience, going to the slot machine, going to play poker, not these bits and pieces that you're talking about. And, and, and frankly, even the children that are sitting on their iPads and watching the YouTube and playing the video games with their friends. And let's talk about, I just threw a lot at you. I'm going back to the Green Valley Ranch. There was the day, September 14th, 2007. What specifically, what what made that your last hoorah? So that was the day that my then wife, good for picking up on that, um, discovered the extent prof- to which I'm I- a professional here. <laughs> <laughs> She she discovered the extent to which I'd been gambling again, because over the previous two years, I had uh, alternately hidden the fact I was even gambling or the amounts I was gambling, minimizing those um, and coming clean on my own a couple times, apologizing, promising never to do it again, um, being a pretty good liar about that, because I, I think I usually believed my own lies when I when I said that I genuinely believed that, you know, gosh, it's gotten so bad this time, I I won't ever do that again. And so um, this last time around was the first time that she had kind of discovered on her own where I hadn't come clean. And um, so uh, it was was a moment where um, for the first time, I think, even though she did not threaten it, that I thought that I was going to lose my family and access to my little girl, potentially, who was two years old at that time. And so for the the first time, even though I had engaged in um, a a couple uh, 12-step meetings at that point, um, you know, I had convinced myself on hearing the the magnitude of some of the impacts and people's stories who had lost their families, who had lost their jobs, who had spent time in prison, who had attempted to end their own lives over their gambling, that I wasn't like those other people. So I had to go, unfortunately, further down that line and get to points of pain that were a lot closer to some of those uh, stories I heard early on before I was willing to engage in, in my recovery. So that day was both both kind of the worst and best days of my life in a number of ways. And um, the, the marriage actually recovered from that moment. So it was, it was nice to see that happen, but ultimately it was also my recovery and the tools I'd been given by programs and my 12 step meetings that led me to maybe led us both to the recognition that the, the marriage was no longer a healthy, loving one in a number of different ways. And we very, mutually um, decided that we we didn't want to model this as a marriage for our, our daughter who was eight years old by this time uh, and um, that it was it was the healthiest thing to do for us to get a divorce. And so it was very amicable, probably you know in the 99th percentile in the realm of amicable divorces, we're still uh, friends today and we we have co-parented our daughter since that time. She's you know very aware of what went on before that time with me. I've kind of tried to bring her up in this recovery mode a little bit uh, so that she is more aware for herself as she gets older, uh, especially. But um, yeah, 
Did that yeah. answer your question? It absolutely answered my question and gave me even more tea. And I'm so excited about it. Thank you so much, Ted. And I want to, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being so open and vulnerable. And then also for sharing with your family, because the importance of us in recovery is so important to share with our children and knowing that, you know, we're not people in recovery are not searching for a new person and we don't want to become someone we want to change. We're just trying to like unsurface who we really are. And yeah, in relationships, sometimes you realize maybe that wasn't the best decision. And I was just kind of chugging along because mm, it was easy. So I love that you shared that story with us. And I know that it was very vulnerable. So thank you so much for sharing that with our audience. And um, I feel I feel like I did my job here so we can be done, but let's move on with some other things. <laughs> um, you, you have had some amazing awards in your in your career, which I want to just uh, pat you on the back virtually. Uh, I I hear that you have a daughter, which I'm going to say that likely is one of your your most precious uh, things in in life. And so, tell me how with with all that you do in the community the message that you send to the family in what you've experienced. And when you talk about, I've brought her up in the recovery world, what does that mean? What does that look like? So, uh, you know, what that means, and, and and she usually doesn't realize I'm doing this right. So some of the, some of the tools they, that, they, that never <laughs> they never do, they never do. We got you That's kids, <laughs> you know, in, in, in recovery programs um, about, about trying to figure out what I have control over and what I don't, you know, the, the serenity prayer is a great tool for many of us, even those of us who, who aren't necessarily religious, right. And in, in trying to figure out um, exactly what we have control over in our lives and what we don't. And so that's, that's one thing that's helped me let go of those things that I don't have control over much more quickly. And I'll often use an example um, road rage, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do uh, with um, the fact that I developed a gambling problem, but in my recovery, recognizing some of those those triggers that would upset me, um, especially those I had no control over, such as somebody else's driving on the road, right? I, I never went chasing after Benny, anybody or flipped them off, but boy, I could cuss a blue streak and completely let it distract me from what was going on um, on the road around me, right? So to the extent that I let that other person's behavior uh, distract distract me, I'm making the road a more dangerous place for everybody who's around me. So I'm still not perfect with that. I'll, I'll tell you right now, and my daughter would tell you, but I'm, I'm more quick to pull myself back and recognize I can't control that person's behavior. Maybe they've got an emergency and that's why they're cutting people off and zipping down the highway. I have no idea what's going on in their lives. And 14 and a half years ago, maybe that was me on my way home from a casino, right? Uh, just not paying attention, mad as hell at the world uh, and everybody in it um, and the things that were happening that were causing me to go out and, and gamble, right? So uh, little little things like that. So talking with her about that, um, talking about um, her own family history, uh, because it goes back several generations on my father's side and her mother also. Uh, has a, addictive disorders of different types on her side. So my daughter's brain probably has that pre-wiring to be able to accept some of these things. And I see so much of myself in her sometimes. She's she's very oversensitive sometimes to emotions and to criticism. She takes those very personally and sometimes hear those um, as I do as, oh, you're not good enough. Even if it's constructive criticism, I hear that like, oh, 
I could have done so much better with that, right? And so trying to have these conversations that certainly my parents never had with me about all of these issues, including how, you know, she's probably at higher risk for any type of addictive disorder, whether it's substances or behavioral, and she needs to be a little more careful than the average person. And I'm glad to say that the research shows that, you know, parents who will talk with their kids from the earliest age, you know, that they have questions about it. Um, it, you know, establishes the parents as a trusted resource on those subjects. And it also uh, tends to uh, ensure that they will at least decrease um, their own risky behaviors as they get older. So that's just one little example. I love it. I love it. It makes me, it's, it's validating a lot in my life and recovery. And I'm hearing some things that are interesting. 12 step for gambling. It exists. Absolutely. It has for um, 64 plus years now. And what? it is modeled yeah, <laughs> modeled after AA, basically. Um, the, the language, you would recognize the language right away. The, the steps have just been rewritten for gambling specifically. And they include not just casino gambling that a lot of us, especially who live in, in Nevada, our mind springs to that, right? When people talk about gambling. But Immediately. I saw That's you right. with those penny slots, just have at it. <laughs> But yeah, any type of gambling, whether that's a, a sports wager between friends or video games, and we, we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. I'm glad you brought it up. And I want to talk about that. Um, but, you know, flipping a coin over a, a cup of coffee or even the stock market, um, cryptocurrencies, right? These are things that are big being talked about in the recovery community. I know several people in recovery who were day traders on the stock market, and that was basically their um, gambling go-to. And I, I think a really good definition of gambling is um, uh, risking something of value, could be cash, could be something else, in order to try and win something of greater perceived value where the outcome is uncertain. doesn't matter whether it's based entirely on chance or skill or a combination of the two, that activity constitutes gambling in terms of how it hits the brain. So that encompasses a lot of things. That's brilliant. And everyone that's listening now realizes they have a gambling problem. So it- no, no. <laughs> With that, Ted, <laughs> we know so that's that just the definition. That's just the definition of gambling, right? Not a gambling problem, you know. And, and <laughs> while there are, you know, nine diagnostic criteria, I won't go into all those. But I, I think there's three basic questions you can ask yourself, really, that will will help you pay a little bit more attention for yourself. One, you know, are you able to um, uh, set and control limits of both money and time for yourself when you go gambling, right? Can you afford to be gambling that money? Number one, you should expect to lose it, right? Anytime we gamble, we should expect to lose that and we should be able to afford to lose it. That should be disposable income. But are you able to to consistently set those limits of money and time? Um, Number two, uh, has gambling become an activity that is starting to cause you to exclude all those other interests in your life that you once found fun, hiking, going on trips with the family, going to the movies, reading books, you know, whatever it is, is that starting to replace a lot of those activities? And then finally, and maybe most importantly, is gambling uh, starting to um, cause negative consequences in one or more areas of your life? And I don't mean just losing on the moment. None of us like to lose, right? Recreational you know, gamblers don't like to lose either. But is that gambling activity, either from a financial standpoint or from a relationship standpoint with your family or job uh, or school, 
uh, starting to have that negative effect. And even though you kind of recognize that, you still feel you're unable to stop. So those those three areas are are good ones to ask ask yourself question. If and if the answer is uh, no to most of those, um, you, you know you're fine. If it's yes to one of those, it's a good time to start thinking about it a little bit more. And thinking about it, I feel like a few of my listeners are going to say, yes, that's definitely, uh, I, I have issues with that. What do I do now? What's next for me? Because I want to just like not make this to the point where I hit the rock bottom that that many of us have or and or talk about. Right. I love that you brought up rock bottom because I, I like to dispel the mythology that we have to let somebody hit rock bottom, right? Yeah. Just go ruin everything. Just go like get close to death and sell your house and crash a car. And then we'll talk about your problem. That's right. Yeah. I mean, if I'm still alive, yeah, if I'm still alive, there's always another rock bottom potentially out there (laughs) that I don't want to get to. Right. So, so I, I really, um, I, I tell people who are aware of somebody else's gambling activities that they're concerned about to please plant those seeds early and often. Don't wait until that dramatic incident happens before you start letting that person in your life know that you are concerned and that their behavior is affecting you in some way, right? And you can do that on very kind of um, eye-focused statements that take completely remove any blame for them and discussing the issue. But from a personal standpoint, if you're noticing that this is beginning to be a problem. Um, you know, fortunately in Nevada, we have uh, quite a number of resources. Uh, the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling is sort of the clearinghouse resource for information on problem gambling in the state of Nevada. And the website is whenthefunstops.org or nevadacouncil.org. They'll get you to the same place. And there's a resource locator on that site, which connects you to a whole range of resources, including um, the 12-step meetings for gambling that are available in the state, not only for the person with the gambling problem, but also for the family or friend, just like there's Al-Anon or Naranon for substances, there's Gammonon for uh, family and friends uh, that's out there. And um, it will also connect you to all of those organizations within the state that have at least one certified problem gambling counselor on staff. Uh, It's very important to know while there is a great deal of overlap Um, in terms of how the substance use disorders and the gambling disorders present and the impacts in one's life. There are some idiosyncrasies and and things with gambling disorder that that do require that higher level of training for the therapist in order to most effectively treat that person. So, you know, part of my mission is getting that information out to counselors and therapists and licensed clinical social workers um, uh, about these uh, resources. And in the state of Nevada, um, organizations that uh, are grantees under the State Problem Gambling Fund will not turn away anybody because of inability to pay. Because surprise, surprise, somebody figured out one day that by the time people with a gambling problem are uh, ready and willing to present for treatment, they've often exhausted their uh, you know, own financial resources, sometimes the resources of their entire family or their job or what have you. So those individuals can get free treatment, as can anybody who's affected by somebody else's gambling in this state. So you can learn how to protect yourself both emotionally and financially from that other person's activities, regardless of whether they're ready to get help and and learn how to heal yourself and your family um, uh, in, in the face of that. Ah, get on it. All right. Oh, and Oh, let me not forget when the, the fun National Problem or... Gambling Helpline number. Yes. So if you need immediate assistance and don't know where to turn, that number is 800-522-4700. 
And that will connect you to somebody who can connect you to resources uh, right away or just talk with you, right? That's so great that this exists. And we will be sure to put that in the show notes as well. So anyone that looks for that, it'll come up on the internet and or podcast, wherever, you know, the interwebs. Thank you for that information. That's great. And so, uh, you know, having that thought that, yes, I might have this problem. Admitting that sort of, I feel like is the first, that's always the first step. And what would you tell someone that feels like I'm, I'm comparing this in my head to a drinker because that's my, that's my comfort level. And so if someone came to me and said, I'm exploring not drinking alcohol any longer. And I immediately think if you're exploring that, then to me, that means you think that you might have a problem with. And so you want to not completely limit it, but get to a place where you can control it. And one of the things that you said in the top three, ask yourself these questions if you think you might have a problem was setting limits. And I find that interesting because I feel in addiction with alcohol if you are at a place where you're setting limits and you've decided that you're going to limit your drinking, that's a huge red flag, a huge red flag that you could still be an alcoholic, that you could still be someone with alcohol use disorder, walking through life, limiting yourself to two drinks. And then once that second one's done, you're obsessed about it the entire time. You can't believe that other people are drinking around you. And all you want to do is have one more drink. I would assume that thinking would be the same with gambling. So if you're at a place where, yeah, I can just, you know, spend a hundred bucks today and do it on Tuesdays, is that not still a problem? Uh, not necessarily. And this, this is where things get very, very blurry, right? So we, we've got what's called, you know, responsible gambling. And a lot of gaming properties have, you know, they're supposed to have responsible gambling programs, which which um, help educate both their employees uh, about what the signs and symptoms of a gambling disorder look like. But also we want to keep people who are currently in a healthy healthy gambling um, sphere, right, in, in that sphere. So to recognize if they are starting to spend more than they usually do, if they are starting to notice that what the things they're using gambling for are not strictly entertainment for, right? They're mm, they're yeah. being triggered by emotions and, and things like that. So they can still be very helpful in terms of, of educational standpoint and help helping people set those limits, right? If if I go out with my friends and you know I'm not going to have more than than one drink or two drinks, whatever it whatever it is, and I'm exceeding that ever, you know, that's a that's a, a good good time to look at that issue. But while in general, uh, people who develop a gambling problem do both increase their time and uh, money limits as that progresses, it's not necessarily the case. So for example, I could gamble every single day of my life and not have a gambling problem. If on the way home from work, I stop off at the bar, I have a beer with friends, I put $20 in the video poker machine, I'm never there more than an hour, I'm uh, never spending more than that $20. Sometimes I'm winning a little bit and taking that home. My family knows where I am. It's not affecting my relationships with my family or my work. It's not affecting me financially. By definition, that's not a, a gambling problem, even though I'm gambling every day. By the same token, I could gamble one time each year. 
And if during that one time I check myself into a suite at the Bellagio, my family thinks I'm out of town for a conference, I gamble for 72 hours straight without sleeping, I go through six months of paychecks that I can't afford to lose. Well, there's all sorts of issues going on there, right? Even though it happens just that one, one time. Right. And you know, what, what I've learned in my own recovery is that very much like with, with substances, people often enjoy long periods of recreational use before it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the barriers I set up for myself in seeking out problems was I had been able to control those limits for a very long time in my life. And then when I couldn't, and it's not something that happened overnight, it was very confusing that I would take those trips back to the ATM, that I began to be obsessed with trying to win back the money I had just lost rather than viewing it as a completely separate event. And so that was a huge barrier because I was convinced I should be able to get back to that time when I could do it recreationally, right? And so there was a two-year process of trying to equip numerous times on my own, lying about it, getting worse and worse in many areas of my life before I came to the recognition, hey, this is not something you're going to be able to do on your own, Ted. Whew, that's a lot. I'm stuck yeah. on the Bellagio still. And I think that you're, <laughs> it comes back to that movie, The Hangover, that uh, most probably immediately think of. <laughs> Great stuff. Thank you for the information. And you talked about the National Council on Problem Gambling a few times, and I know that is an organization near and dear to your heart. So with March being Problem Gambling Awareness Month, what does that specifically mean? Why is this, why is March the month? And and what what is it about? So um, I'm not certain, but I, but I suspect the date was chosen originally to coincide with March Madness, uh, where we have this extended, mm -hmm. you know, multi-week kind of gambling frenzy on sports, uh, college basketball in, in particular, that happens. Um, it also, you know, un unlike some of the anecdotes about suicide rates being higher around the holidays, in fact, the, the that March and April uh, in, in the spring uh, time period tends to be one of the elevated uh, times for suicide risk. Now, there's nothing directly to suggest that it's the gambling that's causing that. But one thing I didn't mention is that gambling disorder has one of the highest suicide rates of any mental health disorder. Is that right? It's about three times the rate of the substance use disorders. Um, so while it affects a smaller percentage of people, suicidality is very, very high. And I suspect the science is really a little bit unknown as to the why, but I'll tell you from kind of first and second and third hand experience that it's likely because this particular addiction can be hidden to such a great extent and the damage that can be done behind the scenes financially, especially can be so significant that sometimes the family can go from in, in the, in the wildest cases from not even knowing there was a problem there at all to finding out, you know, our life savings is gone. The college uh, kids' college education fund is gone. By the way, we're going to lose our house next week or be evicted from our apartment. Mm. And the trauma can be so great that it's very easy for the person with the gambling disorder to rationalize. My family is better off in this world without me in it because yeah, what they're I've not done to them. And they're not slowly learning that, oh, I think they might have a problem or, oh, hey, we better tighten up because Joe's out doing gambling again. Like you literally are like, holy shit, my life might be over because my house is gone. My money's gone. And yeah, that's a burden to bear. 
That's right. So that that's pretty significant. So again, building awareness that this this is and this is done across the country, even though it's facilitated by the National Council, it's 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 basically rolled out by the state affiliates of which the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling is one uh, through just more engagement with uh, uh, substance use partners, with schools, uh, with different agencies and events. Uh, we don't have a, an event again this year because of, of COVID, but in the past we've had kind of day-long drop-ins at community centers where people could learn about this. But I, I think destigmatizing uh, addiction in general, just by talking about it in a very matter-of-fact way, the same we do any other chronic and progressive illness, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, really important because there is a biological basis for addictive disorders. We can see that in the brain and the different response for some of us. And uh, to help people um, talk about it, but also recognize that there's fantastic treatment out there. I think we have some of the best treatment here in Nevada in the world for gambling disorder and people who will engage in it are very, very successful for the most part. So to recognize there's hope in that moment when all you feel is pain and despair and think there's there's no way out is very important. And so we try to get all of those uh, messages among others out there. That's great to hear. I definitely will make sure we have all of the resources available on our website and show notes. We're coming up to time, but I definitely want to be able to have conversation about this video gambling disorder. Hot topic. Yeah. And a gaming disorder is what the World Health Organization calls it. They've recognized it for a few years now. Internet gaming disorder will be used, will be the term that the American Psychiatric Association uses. It's one that one of those that's being explored within the, the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychologists use, of course, to diagnose mental health disorders. Um, and it's it's been researched uh, quite a bit over the past decade. So I expect the next iteration to have that listed. And even though they have internet in the title, it really doesn't need to be an internet-based game. That's just a recognition that those games which are connected to the internet and are constantly updating and are very immersive and that go on forever and ever and ever without a, an end point can be uh, some of those that can be most addictive. And I also want to call special attention um, uh, for both parents uh, and kids, quite frankly, because the average age of today's gamer is 32 to 34 years old, and they've been gaming for at least 14 years. So obviously those numbers. Yes, yes. So it's not just this is not just a kid thing. Right. And um, gaming disorder probably affects about the same percentage of the population as gambling disorder. So probably one to three percent. But then right above that, there's a whole people that are starting to engage in maybe problematic behavior that we want to kind of pull back into that healthy side. And there are features in certain games called loot boxes. You may have heard this term. Loot? Like L-O-O-T? L-O-O-T. Have you heard that term before? No. Okay. But I I think you will recognize it when I describe it. So these are in-game purchases that you can make. And they often present as a treasure chest or something like that, a box. And um, what makes them of concern to those of us in kind of the gambling recovery and the research community is that uh, you don't know what you're buying when you purchase that. Now, lots of games, you know, Candy Crush, you have the ability to to buy things that will help you level up more quickly, but you know exactly what you're purchasing with that money, whether it's 99 cents, $1.99, $2.99, right? But with certain games, you can buy these 
these these objects. They're virtual objects called loot boxes, but you don't know what you're getting. You're hoping for that super rare item, uh, so that that weapon or that armor or a million level ups or whatever it is. But you're much more likely to get. Um, the same things you could have gotten if you had just played the game for free for 10 or 15 more minutes, right? You just didn't <laughs> want to take the time for you again. So this is what makes the persuasive psychology behind them exactly the same as a slot machine. Mm. You're putting that money in, you're hoping for that super rare event that's going to change your life or change your game in this case. So it's hitting the reward center in, in the same way. And the research has shown that there is a direct relationship between people who have a gambling disorder and problematic use of loot boxes in these games. Um, now, I will say that the earliest research, and this is just a couple of years old, looking at whether there's a gateway effect, right, from kids or adults who may be purchasing loot boxes and transitioning into a gambling problem, that's a lot less clear. There does not seem to be a direct relationship that can be identified. But until we know what that relationship is, best to limit kids' exposure uh, to those particular in-game uh, purchases until they're as old as possible or have that conversation as to why, you know, they're not allowed to spend the money uh, on these particular features, right? And my my daughter loves um, Fortnite. She plays that with friends. Uh, at one point, they did have one of the versions that had a loot box type feature. They actually got sued over that and lost and had to pay out 50 bucks to players, but they also paid out a bunch of virtual currency too to kind of drive kids back to the game or participants back to the game. I was but, just going to ask you about that when you said, when you, so you brought up the, uh, they, the game that she was just playing uh, Fortnite. Fortnite. Mm -hmm. The, are there regulations behind these sort of uh, gaming? you know, internet gaming, I'm thinking like immediately big alcohol, you know, or smoking, like you have to put these, you can't do this. Or you go into the bathroom and it says, don't drink because you're, if you're pregnant and which I find interesting, right. by the way, you can kill your kid if you drink, but you're fine. Yeah. So one thing again, for parents to be aware of all of these games have uh, ratings attached through them. These are very like much like the ratings for movies. Right. And so there's E for everyone. There's uh, E 10 plus for kids who are 10 and older, there's teen plus. Teen plus is the level at which you can start to have simulated gambling appear in the game. So even though there's no chance to win real money, a lot of the games are like roulette wheels, slot machines, playing like a poker type game. So we need to be a little bit concerned and aware of that because a lot of people think this is grooming kids to engage in real gambling yeah. activities and maybe giving them the impression that they're much more skilled than they are, right? Because payouts in the virtual world are always going to be much more exaggerated than in the real world in these games. Now, are um, these games linked to the casinos where they're actually getting... Oh, okay. Another <laughs> great question. So there are lots of social casinos online. You can see these through Facebook, other social media portals, again, where you are playing gambling type games, but you can't win money. And some of those do have direct relationships to real world casinos. Absolutely. A lot of casinos went to these during the pandemic to keep some of their customers just engaged with their brand, right? And help and maybe give them in incentives where they could get vouchers or something when they came back in the casinos. Um, 
Regulation-wise, these things are completely unregulated. Uh, there are no laws governing who can or can participate. There is no responsibility on the owners of these things to provide any information on what if this becomes a problem. In fact, they do have hosts in some of these games that will uh, be assigned to their whales, right? And we have really sad stories about adults losing hundreds of thousands of dollars mm. in some cases on games where they never could actually win any real money, right? Oh. Where they were spending this. Now, other countries are doing a better job on this already. There are a lot of European countries who have already banned use uh, of, of loot box features in games for minors. Um, Germany, the UK, I have regulations, China, Japan, South Korea. I wouldn't be surprised if ultimately we do. And there certainly needs to be further discussion. But right now, uh, completely unregulated. Why are we always so far behind in this kind of stuff? I don't money, know. money, 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 money. <laughs> yes. Money. Okay. That's, this is all my opinion. You know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, a, I don't have a, a master's degree in, in research here. Okay. Oh my gosh, we've covered so much. We've covered so much, Ted. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you really want to talk about and make sure the listeners hear? I don't think so. Just again, to emphasize um, the relationship there can be with substances and gambling, because that's that's one a lot of people are unaware of, that, that again, that biochemistry can be identical. Um, just because you become addicted to a substance or to gambling doesn't mean you're going to become addicted to the other thing, but exercising tremendous self-awareness that if you choose to continue gambling and it's always been fun and it's never been an issue, uh, but you are in recovery uh, from a substance use disorder, for example, uh, again, just keep those, those few points that I mentioned in mind as you are playing you know, can you afford to be spending that money? Are you sitting at that machine while your family and friends go off to the movie or dinner saying you'll be ca- you'll catch up later? Things like this. How is it impacting your life or the way that you think uh, about it? Um, and, and but knowing that those resources are, are out there and being OK to reach out for help. That's something, especially in Western society, we're just so that I guess that rugged individuality about solving things on my own and I don't need help. And it's a weakness to reach out for help. Those are all backwards, right? Uh, in, in my mind, even though I understand them and struggled with them and went through that period of denial, you know, it, it's okay. It really is. And, it really uh, is. And yeah. brave people like you are standing up to tell us that. And, I, and I'm and so you. Oh yeah. 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 And thank hey. you. Of course, drinking sucks. So does gambling. It's going to ruin your life. Stop doing all of it. <laughs> if you have a problem, of course, right? Um, no, it's it's just, it's great uh, to hear this. And, you know, I am immersed in this because I live in, we have slot machines in the grocery store, for God's sakes. I have to pass the slot machines and the wine tasting on my way to get chicken for dinner. So, holy Jesus, some of us have like... They call it willpower. I don't call it willpower. I love what you just said. It's self-awareness. It's recognizing that, you know, we're not going to get sucked into this. And some of us do have those problems. What I want to make sure that our listeners know about are the resources that Ted discussed here. You can go to whenthefunstops.org. I love the name. Whoever was in the marketing department and picked that one is fabulous. Uh, Resource locator there. Also, if you need immediate help, you can call 1-800-522-4700. I will make sure all this information is in the show notes. Ted, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure getting to know you. I can't wait to connect in Nevada and just, you know, crush the stigma here with addiction in general. 
Thank you so much, Lori. I really enjoyed it. And we're done. Yay. That was great. Awesome. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, thank you. You know, all, all great questions. And, and obviously, you've done this before. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovery Hour podcast. Successful podcasts equal subscribers and good ratings. Please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. To learn more about me, your host, Lori Windfell, jump on over to therecoveryhour.com. Here, you'll find information on my coaching and speaking practices, as well as information on guests of the show. If you're still listening to this and you haven't subscribed to my mom yet, what are you doing? You're lame. So go do it right now. All right, all right. Calm down. Sorry about that. He's just really excited for this to be successful since I've been spending all of my free time on this project and not with him. While you aren't lame, as my son suggests, I would really appreciate a few minutes of your time to subscribe. While it doesn't seem like much, it really does help my goal in spreading the word of recovery. Until next time, let's continue to inspire, live, and give.